0: Thank you, choir. It's a wonderful song, and it helps helps us to understand our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and be flipping to uh, Mark chapter 1. We've been in the gospel of Mark for some time now, and we will continue. Mark chapter 1, and as I have studied this week, and I have tried to internalize this text in my own life, I have been eager to share it with you. Uh, I feel it is very timely for many of the situations going on in your lives that this text speaks specifically to some of you in very particular ways. And for that reason, I'm eager to share it with you. Some of you, in particular, have been on my heart and in my prayers this week as I have moved through this text. But... I'm eager to share it with you anyway because it is God's Word. And because the Word of God does not return void. The Word of God never meets us without truth. And so, if you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 1, I will invite you to stand. We stand to proclaim that we honor God's Word and its central place in our life, that it is the authority. Mark chapter 1, we will pick up reading in verse 21. because they knew him let's pray Lord this is your word this is a story out of your very own life help us to see Holy Spirit the truths that lie in this word help Holy Spirit to apply them to our hearts and our lives that we might know you rightly that we might know ourselves rightly and that we might follow after you cause this word your holy word to work in our hearts and our lives this day Amen. You may be seated. So Mark, the writer of this gospel, Mark is teaching us, he's inviting us to embed ourselves in God's story. That means to put ourselves inside of the story of God. Now ultimately that's where we live, that's where the world is inside the story of God. But sometimes we don't always live like that. Sometimes we're not always thinking like that, but Mark is imploring us, he's pleading with us to see that we live inside of God's story. Because you see, sometimes we try to separate ourselves from God. We think about, think about two different roads, that Monday through Saturday we, we ride on our road, and on Sunday we take a detour over to God's road, and when Sunday's over we come back onto our road. And we ride on our road until something goes wrong in our life, and then we immediately go get over on god's road because that's where god is but when things start going good we come back over on our road we sing that song blessed be the name of god when things are good when the sun is shining down when the paths are easy but sometimes when the road gets hard blessed be the name of god isn't the first thing off our lips sometimes when things get hard we ask god why And Mark wants us to see that our lives happen in the story of God. They happen in God's world. And Jesus doesn't leave room for a both and. Jesus doesn't leave room for us to live our own lives and some kind of godliness on the side. Mark wants us to see that not only is Jesus the Son of God who's come to carry out God's mission with God's authority. Now he wants us to see that. But not only that, He wants us to see that this story is the only story in the world. It's the only story that makes sense of every other story. If you want to know who you are as a person, you come to the Word of God. If you want to know who your life is, or what your life is, and what's going on in your life, and how to deal with your life, we come to the story of God. Because God's story is not just a good story, it's the only story. And that is what Mark is showing us. And so let me, you see there on your notes the main idea of today's sermon. That Jesus' teaching and power over demons and sickness gives us a picture of the kingdom of God or the government of God. And it shows us that Jesus has absolute authority over all creation. Jesus is going to teach and cast out demons and heal sickness. And what Mark wants us to see is that Jesus has all authority. And here's my prayer, brothers and sisters, that as we move through this, that the Holy Spirit will help you in ways that you need help. That the Holy Spirit will apply this word, not my preaching of the word because it will be flawed, but the purity of God's word to your lives in ways that you need it. And so let's move into the first point, which is this, that Jesus has authority over the demonic realm. We see this in verses 21 to 28. And before we get into this, I want you to note, this all happens on one day, all right? This is, a, this is a full day, but it's one 24-hour period of time that all of this happens. It says, and they went into Capernaum, which is the place where Peter lived, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, if you'll recall from the very first sermon I preached in Mark, I said, some people call Mark the Go Gospel. That it's a fast-paced narrative. It's a fast-paced story. And If you read through the passage I read, he uses the word immediately a lot. Immediately he went into the synagogue. Immediately he began teaching. Immediately this and that. Mark is helping us to see the pace at which Jesus lived and ministered and taught. Not that Jesus was a busy person, but Mark is not wasting his time with some fluff. He wants us to see and encounter Jesus. And so on Saturday which was the Jewish which is the Jewish Sabbath they went into Capernaum and into the synagogue now the synagogue is a central place of worship in Jewish life it's much akin to what we would call a church building here and we would meet on we meet on Sundays they meet on Saturdays on the Sabbath and he went into the synagogue and was teaching now we would find it quite odd if in one of our gathered meetings, someone came in the door and just started teaching. Well, let me help you. We should find that odd (laughs) if someone did that. Let me just speak as your pastor for a moment. Let's not do that. (laughs) We want to make sure people are vetted, that they are qualified to teach and preach the word. And that's, it, it can strike us odd in our modern culture that Jesus just goes into the synagogue, which he's never been in, and starts teaching. But you see, in their day, recognized rabbis had that permission. They could just walk into a synagogue and start teaching. Now, I just said a moment ago that this is his first time in here. That was incorrect, so I apologize about that, which is ironic, being I just told you people should preach and teach rightly. But (laughs) he had grown up in this region. He had grown up in this region, and he had been teaching for some time, and so people would have known him or known about him. And so he had the authority, he had the recognition to go into the synagogue and teach. And it said he did just that. He walked in and started teaching. And so what we need to understand is that teaching, the act of teaching is central to the ministry of Jesus. That is central and essential to the mission of Jesus in the world. Now, that will translate later to the mission of the church. Part of our mission as the church of Jesus Christ is to teach or to transmit the word of God and how it applies to our life. But he begins teaching as one with authority. Now, it's interesting the way Mark records this because he doesn't record it as Jesus starts teaching the authority. Jesus starts teaching the authoritative word. It says he teaches as one with authority. And that should be no surprise to you at this point because we have been talking from the very beginning that Jesus has all authority. But remember, we are the ones with that background information. The people in the synagogue don't know who Jesus is in an eternal sense. They don't know that this is God in the flesh standing before them. But it says, Mark says, As he's teaching, a man with a demon cries out. A man with a demon cries out, or possessed by a demon stands up and cries out. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the people are not only taken with Jesus' authority, Jesus' teaching, now there is this crazy man who has interrupted the service, which we would again find odd today. If somebody stood up and just started screaming and hollering, we would not know how to respond to that. <coughs> and demon possession, I think, has not gone away. I think it's certainly still a reality in our world, but it's not something I think we think about a lot. I have never, to my knowledge, encountered someone possessed by a demon. You may have. I don't know. But it's not as common today as it was then. And it was very common then. And and we'll talk about that more as Mark unfolds his gospel message. But a man stands up with with a demon, possessed by a demon, and cries out. And look at what Jesus says. It says, but Jesus rebuked him. Jesus spoke to him. You see, in this day and time, people who performed exorcisms, which is the casting out of a demon, would need tools, or they would use some kind of special incantation, or a formula, or they referenced something outside of themselves. I need something in order to accomplish the job of getting this demon out. That's not what happens with Jesus. Jesus says, come out, and the demon comes out, because he's teaching as one with authority. He is the one who possesses all authority. He doesn't need a tool. He doesn't need magic. He only needs his word. And as we saw last time, when he called the disciples, his word demands obedience. You see, Mark ties these together, this teaching and this exorcism in the synagogue, so that we see and so that they would see Jesus' teaching is verified in his power. So not only is he teaching as one who possesses authority, he is demonstrating, brothers and sisters, that he has that authority. He's not just saying, by the way, here's a new teaching. He is demonstrating in power that he possesses that authority. We see in verse 24 that the demon names him. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, as I said... We, the readers, the angels and the demons, are the only ones at this point who know who Jesus is. The people in the synagogue don't know that he is the Holy One of God. And so the demon attempts to gain power over Jesus. So in this day and age, when demons were more prevalent, when casting out of demons was more needed, it was thought that if I could name them, I could somehow gain authority over them. If I could say their name, or if the demon could say my name, there would be authority over me. Now, we still do that today, and I guarantee you, if you're a parent in the room, you still do that, because I grew up hearing, and I had to get real close to the edge, but I would hear, Benjamin Addison, and I knew that when my dad said my full name, I had gone too far. Now, I try that sometimes, and it doesn't always work. If you're a parent, you know that too. Our authority has its limits. But the same idea was present in this time. So when a demon says his name, says Jesus of Nazareth, he's attempting to gain control over Jesus. And the people would have known that. The people in the synagogue would have known that. And so they were waiting to see what's going to happen now that the demon has his name. And we see Jesus respond. Jesus will have none of this having authority over him. Jesus speaks to him and says come out and the demon comes out. And so even though the demon names him and efforts to gain control over him, Jesus says absolutely not. He actually speaks it says in our in our translation it says be silent or be rebuked. It also translates be muzzled. And so Jesus in saying be muzzled muzzles the demon. He silences him with a word. Jesus' authority, brothers and sisters, overwhelms this demon. Now, notice what the demon says. He asks him a question. He says, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? Now, later we will encounter a man who's possessed by many demons. But here it seems to be one, and yet he uses this plural language, us. And what Mark is doing, what Mark is doing is reminding us, of what Jesus has come to do. Now perhaps you will remember that when Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, he went to do battle against Satan. And he went to battle Satan on behalf of us, the church. And I said in that sermon that what Mark is showing here is that behind every human encounter, behind what we see, there is a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual realm where Satan is at war with God and Jesus has come to defeat Satan and by coming out of the wilderness, he has shown that he has defeated Satan. And this demon knows it. This demon recognizes who he is and he knows Jesus has come to do battle against us and to crush us. And so he says, I know who you are. I know why you've come and Jesus will not have it. And so he cast the demon out. And so Jesus' his encounter, as I said, with Satan in the desert has prepared us for this episode. And these two things will prepare us for every other episode with demons in the future. That Jesus will win. That Jesus has authority over them. But we're also going to see Jesus commission his disciples in, in the story to come. He's going to commission his disciples to cast out demons in his name. Now that might, might not strike you as odd, but it should because what that tells us is that not only does Jesus have the authority in himself to cast out the demons, he has the authority to vest it in others. You see, if I am given authority by someone else, I'm, I don't have the authority to give it away. I'm still in, I'm still in underneath the one who gave me authority. But we're going to see Jesus give authority to his disciples to cast out the demons, and what that says is that he not only has that authority, but he is the authority. He's not just one who possesses it. He is in himself the authority of God. And so which leads us to our second point that Jesus has authority over sickness. It says, when he finished... Casting out the demons, when he finished his teaching, he went to... Or it says he immediately left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon. Now, if you've ever been to Capernaum or seen a map of Capernaum, it would have been about the same distance between this room and our fellowship hall. Not a far walk from the synagogue to Simon's house. The town was rather small. It sat on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. But he left the synagogue and he went to the house of Simon and Andrew. And it tells us that his mother-in-law is sick. This is one of the few places in Scripture where it tells us Peter was married, that he had a mother-in-law, and that she was sick with a fever. Now, in the ancient world, people didn't know that fevers were symptoms of something else. They often treated fevers as a sickness themselves. So they didn't know what would happen. They didn't know if she would die. But they didn't have ways to treat fevers then, and so they treated everything very seriously. And so they tell Jesus... That she's sick, and Jesus comes. <sniffs> Notice that Jesus doesn't speak to this lady. He doesn't speak to her. Look at verse 31. It says, he came and took her by the hand. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And then what does it say? The fever left her. The fever left her. You know, it says in Luke, and this is one of my... F- I'm going to say that a lot. I have a lot of favorite Bible verses, all right? Just, just roll with it. It's a great picture in Luke's gospel when he's telling this story because it says Jesus rebuked the fever. Think about that. When, when you get a fever or your child gets a fever or somebody that you know gets a fever, do you rush to rebuke that fever? If you're like me, you go get the thermometer and some medicine. We don't rebuke fevers. Fevers are just things that are outside of our control. But it says Jesus rebuked it. That's odd language. That's odd that Jesus rebukes a sickness. He rebukes a fever. And just like here, Luke records that the fever left her. But here, Mark says, Jesus touches the woman, pulls her up, and the fever leaves her. That he has authority even in his touch. Even his, even his intentions have the authority of God. But we also see that he's compassionate. That he cares for this lady. That he has genuine concern for the sick and the hurting. Because he came and sat beside her bed and took her by the hand and healed her we need not miss the placement of this story in Mark's story. It directly follows Jesus' call to discipleship. It directly follows it. He calls the disciples, he's teaching in the synagogue, and here he's healing Peter's mother-in-law. Notice also that as soon as Peter's mother-in-law is healed, she immediately begins serving Jesus. He says she gets up and begins to serve Jesus. And Mark's point is that Sickness is to be understood, brothers and sisters, as another avenue of discipleship. Sickness is to be understood as an opportunity for discipleship. And I want to s- explain some more about that. You see, through sickness and illness and hardship, we are invited to follow Jesus down the road of suffering. And we do not, we do not walk it alone. He meets us on that road by giving us himself. And Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law produced service unto God. When Jesus healed her, she immediately began to serve him. And Mark makes no mistake in bringing that to our attention. Some of you are suffering now. Some of you in this room, in this building, under the sound of my voice, are suffering now. From sickness, from cancer, from illness, from other physical issues, from stresses with your job. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is not the absence of God's presence in your life. Rather, it is an invitation to know Him more. Whatever is going on in your life that's bringing you suffering as a Christian is an invitation to know God more and to walk with Him closer to walk with Him in a way that you never have. And Mark is reminding us, as I said a moment ago, that all of life happens inside of God's story. It all happens under His authority. You see, we often come to know God more through suffering than through ease. We often come to know God more when we suffer than when things are going good. And so I want to speak to you for a moment as your pastor. Not that I haven't been speaking to you, but I want to to pastor you for the next few moments. You see, Jesus' authority over sickness does not always mean that he heals us here and now. What we see in this text is that Jesus has absolute authority over sickness. If he can rebuke a fever with his touch, he can do anything. If he can cast out a demon with the word of his mouth, he can do anything. But Jesus' authority over it doesn't always mean that he's going to heal us here and now. We need to recognize, brothers and sisters, that God sometimes uses sickness in our lives for a greater purpose. That he sometimes brings hardship and sickness and suffering into our lives for a greater purpose. Sometimes he intends for us to walk the road of sickness and illness in order to find him. Sometimes he intends for us to walk that road in order to glorify him and to live to his glory. And while he may not always heal sickness in this life, he always meets us in it. You see, church, Jesus never does us wrong. When we encounter sin in our lives, when we encounter sickness in our lives, and we encounter suffering in our lives, we may say with confidence, brothers and sisters, that God is right, even though we can't see. And when we see that our story, our lives, is ultimately being told within God's story, sickness and suffering take on a new meaning. Knowing that God is with us in our suffering, we see that he is inviting us to receive ultimate healing. He's inviting us to look past whatever is going on with our bodies or with our lives and to see that he heals infinitely and eternally. He's inviting us to experience the enduring and unbreakable reality that he saves and heals our souls. You see, cancer can't get to your soul. Sickness can't get to your soul, but sin can, and sin will damn your soul to hell forever without the grace of God through Jesus Christ, which is why we desperately need Jesus for salvation, and what Mark is showing us here is that Jesus has total authority over earthly sickness, and that should bring us a lot of hope, but brothers and sisters, he's inviting us to see something greater than that, that Jesus has authority over sin, And that Jesus saves from sin. And it doesn't matter whether you get healed here or not. In Christ we are healed forever. He invites us to know the text of Romans where it says, I consider that these sufferings right now aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. You see, if we understand the truth of God's word, if we get a glimpse of Revelation 21 that I read a few moments ago, if we see what's coming for us in Jesus Christ, anything that happens here is just light and momentary. But if we don't see, if we don't know God, if we aren't following him, then that sounds like rubbish. If you are not following hard after God and knowing him through his word, and you're in the middle, middle of the battle of cancer, that sounds like foolishness that I just said. But God invites us to know him. Because you see, this is our ultimate reality. That God is reconciling our eternal soul to himself, and bringing us into his presence, and giving us unending and unspeakable joy. You see, that's the purpose of our existence. That's why God made us, and it doesn't matter whether God heals our bodies now. Jesus' authority can provide physical healing, but he is exercising ultimate authority over our life and over our death. And that is more important. If we are in him by faith, church, we will stand before the Father free of condemnation, free of judgment, clothed in love, and filled with joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 has been an important text in my life and the lives of some people that I know and love, but I want to share it with you this morning because it it fits with where we are. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is wrestling with the brokenness of life. He's wrestling with the fact that his body is broken, that life is broken, that sin is hard. And here is what he says, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You know what that means? We have the gospel in fragile pots of clay. We have the treasure of the infinite and eternal God in our fragile, breakable lives. And do you know why our lives are fragile and breakable? So that we might not forget that God isn't. So that we might not forget that we can't get to God on our own. So that we might not forget we live inside of God's story. God doesn't live inside of my story. So he he says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that it's God's power, not ours. And then listen to what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down. But we are not destroyed. And then look down at verse 16. He says, so, or another way to say it is, because of all of this, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, though it's already decaying. So another way to say it is, we can see that death is already at work. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And the original Greek language there implies that that's not something that stops. That that's an eternal promise from God. That God will renew you forever. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's what? Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're already on the move. They're already on their way out. But the things that are unseen, brothers and sisters, are Eternal. And you see, Jesus, by exercising his authority over this woman's fever, is inviting us to look beyond the physical and to see the spiritual. He's inviting us to see that our ultimate hope in this life does not rely on whether or not we get over this sickness, whether or not this suffering goes out of my life. Our ultimate hope is founded on the promises of God. Some of us struggle with contentment, especially, especially when we are suffering. Many of us know Philippians 4, verse 13, where it says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But I want to help us understand what he means there. Because Paul says, I know how to be brought low. He says Philippians 4, verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And here's what he means. Whatever life throws at me, whatever happens to my body, whatever happens to my life, I can be content because Jesus is strengthening me. That's not a, you can do better if you try harder and God is honored with that kind of verse. That is a verse deeply rooted in the story of the Bible where it says this is God's story and God is redeeming his people and this earthly life ultimately has no effect if we are in Christ. You see, the secret of contentment is knowing Christ is with us. Circumstances are secondary. Our ultimate hope is not in healing but in healing from sickness, but in healing from sin. And Jesus has authority for both. And whereas he may, not promise forget, he may not promise healing of sickness here in this life, he promises healing from sin to all who would trust and follow him. So as we come to our reflection and application, I'll make a few comments. Thus far in Mark, Jesus has proved so powerful that it has compelled people to leave their occupation and their father to follow him. His word has proved so powerful that it has gone above or transcended the teaching of the scribes. So powerful that it has defeated Satan's demonic forces. So powerful that he's become the talk of an entire region so much so that they gathered at his door. So powerful that it even commands sickness and illness. So let me ask you this. Do we think that our lives somehow escape the reality of Jesus' authority? Do we really think that our lives escape the authority of the eternal God? Because Mark would say no. That his authority is infinite and absolute. And so I want to ask you this question. You see it there on your notes. How am I responding to Jesus' authority? That's a question we need to wrestle with and that we need to grapple with. How are we responding to Jesus' authority? Let me start with the right response. A right response would include repentance over sin, submission to God in all things, trusting Him even when it's hard, faith, loyalty, following after Him. And a right response to Jesus' authority is peace. Peace. Here, John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that, you might, that in me you might have peace. I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. You hear that? Jesus said life's going to be hard. Philippians 1 verse 29 I remember when I read it he says not only has it been granted to you to believe in Christ it's also been granted to you to suffer for his sake and Jesus says even when tribulation comes take heart because I've overcome the world you see his authority gives us peace his words to us are intended for the purpose of trusting him in his authority all things that trouble us all things that concern us and burden us whether it's sickness or demons or death Jesus has told us that his authority has overcome all of these things. And knowing that, brothers and sisters, we are invited to have peace that surpasses understanding. We are invited to have a joy, a joy in the midst of heartache. But you see, there's also a wrong response to Jesus' authority. A wrong response is rejection of his authority. An insistence on my way an attempt to manipulate God's authority for our own gains and our own benefits. You see, we do that. We try to behave enough to where God will like us, or we'll try to give enough so that God will give back to us, or we'll try to do this, that, and the other to manipulate God to like us or to forgive us or to be gracious to us. But consider this. How you think about Jesus' authority in your life has zero bearing on his authority in your life. How you think about Jesus' authority, whether it's rightly or wrongly, has zero bearing on His authority in your life. It has zero bearing on His actual authority in the world because His authority stands and persists whether you acknowledge it or not. If you disregard it, then you are rejecting the world as it is. This is why John says in 1 John 1, if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, that means that we walk in darkness rejection of God's authority. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. John didn't say, if you say you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, then you're just being a bad Christian. He didn't say, if you say you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, then you're choosing a wrong path. He calls you a liar because you are rejecting reality. You're rejecting the story of God as it actually is exists and so if you are here this morning and you recognize that you have either never fully submitted to the authority of Jesus in your life or that you have outright rejected it he invites you to find grace and peace and hope in him this morning he invites you to find salvation in his name this morning he invites you to turn from your sin this morning If you are here and you are struggling with sickness and with illness and you have had a wrong response to God's authority and that he's inviting you to repent and find grace. Because you see, our God is a God of love and a God of mercy, but he is a God of authority. And brothers and sisters, it is a distinct and deep gift that our God has authority over demons and over sickness and over our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is good, and your word is life. We can never think too much about your word. We can never have too much of your word in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. Lord, I pray that your word this morning has worked in our hearts and our lives to stir up affections for you, to stir up worship and praise that has steadied some of us in the midst of hardship. But Lord, I pray that your word has convicted sin, that it will bring about repentance, that it will bring about faithfulness. Lord, as we respond now through song, I pray that we will respond worshipfully, humbly, submissively, but joyfully. Lord, I ask these sings in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand together to sing. I'll be down front if you'd like to pray. Let's stand and worship.